Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to The Scramble. That's our Monday episode of The Colin McEnroe Show where we scramble around at the last minute to uh, decide what we're going to put on the air. Um, Because, in fact, we like the spontaneity of it. So, and I suppose that sort of runs, that's kind of on a collision course with uh, our first topic. So anyway, what we're going to talk about today, I I have something very odd in my headphones right now. (laughs) Is there some way that you can actually make, this is more spontaneous than we really want to be. There, it just went away. Um, (laughs) That was great. That was like a test of concentration. Could I keep talking with whatever that was going on? All right, so uh, we're going to uh, talk about three topics today. I'm warning you and sort of apologizing and whatever else I have to do that the middle topic will be about Game of Thrones, which I know is a problem because some of you don't watch Game of Thrones. Others of you watch Game of Thrones, but on a time delay, so you really don't want to hear it talked about. I don't know what to say about that except that Game of Thrones is of such cultural valence that there's just... There's no way at the end of season five that we're not going to have a conversation about it. So, but And we, we are going to try to do it very inclusively, not perfectly inclusively. I know this because the conversation's already on tape. Uh, we did it about an hour ago. I, you know, It wasn't possible to talk about it, A, without doing some spoilers, and B, without getting into things that you're just not going to understand if you don't watch the series. But we did try to extract from it as many universal lessons as possible. And then towards the end of the show, Henry Alford, one of our favorite regular uh, guests, will join us to talk about the death of the RSVP uh, and the what he calls the aspirational RSVP. Uh, Henry is a purser and observer of shifts, subtle and extreme in modern uh, manners. But we're going to begin with a topic where I feel as though even in raising it, I'm on thin ice. The topic, uh, it's, well, it's based on a, a piece by our guest Jeet Heer, uh, a senior editor at The New Republic. Why are Canadians so boring? Because we work at it. I feel that I'm on thin ice simply because I'm sitting in Hartford, Connecticut. So who am I to talk about anybody uh, being boring? In fact, I'm on public radio, which some people incorrectly think is boring. In, I'm on public radio in Hartford, Connecticut. I mean, you know, where is the nose that I can look down? Uh, but uh, anyway, Bajit here wrote this uh, fascinating piece. It's done in Storify style, uh, a series of tweets. It begins, I want to talk a bit about Canadian boringness. So, Jeet here, first of all, welcome to the show. And we have a problem there, too. Jeet here, can you hear me? All right, I'm going to back off there and put that on hold and see if we can figure out what's going on with that. I'm, I'm guessing that when we turned down the horrible thing that was in my headphones, we also turned down Jeet here. So that would be my uh, suggestion about how, how to solve that problem. So while you're solving that problem, let me say a few other things. So um, this is a piece uh, about Canadian boringness. Uh, it's um, And when we say Canadian boringness, we also have to say that we're talking about um, – not just um, we're not we're not talking about Montreal. We're not talking about Quebec City. We're not talking about the uh, francophone part uh, of Quebec, because, first of all, I mean, then I'd really be on thin ice sitting in Hartford talking about how boring uh, Montreal and Quebec City are. Where, but in fact, they're very entertaining things. But there is this notion of Canadian boringness. And, and I've always 
even question whether it's true or not. Once again, Toronto and Vancouver are really exciting cities. And it's always felt to me also as though Canadians were making some kind of joke about their own boringness that they're kind of in on. But if we have uh, solved these problems, Jeet here, are you with us? I am. There you go. Okay. So you begin by saying, I want to talk a bit about Canadian boringness. Now, some people would say that assumes facts, not in evidence. Um, I mean, how sure can anybody be that Canadians are boring? But but you, you make a compelling case in the succession of tweets. Uh, so uh, make a version of that case for us right now. Sure. Um, I guess I, what sparked the whole thing was um, a headline that appeared in the Globe and Mail, which is you know, a major Canadian newspaper. Um, and the headline was, uh, I'm quoting from memory here, but it's, it's something to the effect of, you know, um, are Canadians uh, paying enough attention to interprovincial trade disputes? <laughs> uh, and now, now, I mean, we live in the era of BuzzFeed and clickbait, right? And this seems to be like the, the opposite of clickbait. It's like a headline that is designed to repel attention. Uh, and uh, and then it's not like uh, uh, uncommon. Like there's a a kind of um, uh, aspect of Canadian culture where it's not just boring by default. You know, like so certain things are like very important, but are boring. Like you know, like nuclear nonproliferation, right? right. But, but I, it's a little bit. Canada's a little bit different. Like I think there's certain things in Canadian culture. There's a certain part of our literary culture, or our film culture that, that that loves boring topics. You know. Um, there's a whole genre of um, uh, novels uh, that um, uh, someone once referred to as angst on a farm, you know, sort of prairie <laughs> coming-of-age novels. And, and it's not just that these things get published, you know, but, but they're, they're actively rewarded. They're, they're much more likely to win major literary awards in Canada. Whereas if you conversely, you know, you write something um, interesting, um, I'll, you know, I'll mention like, you know, like Douglas Copeland uh, is a Canadian and wrote Generation X, which... Mm got worldwide attention, but uh, never won an award in Canada, because th- that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or um, uh, uh, William Gibson, the um, uh, uh, cyberpunk novel who created, uh, you know, cyberpunk, uh, and again, um, uh, internationally celebrated, but not uh, in Canada, because he's not writing about angst on a farm. So, 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 so I do think that there is this aspect of Canadian culture that cherishes um, things that are like oatmeal, that are, you know, like good for you, but not exciting. Yeah, at a certain point in this um, chain of, of tweets, uh, I, I, well, I was in the unenviable position of feeling as though there were Canadian jokes that I was being left out of because there was some reference to Prime Minister Harper. I could tell whether it was fictional or imagined. Oh, oh or... no, this is absolutely true. This is from Paul Wells, who's a very respected journalist at uh, McLean's magazine and he he has a, he's written the best book on Harper and he's um uh you know not a critic of Harper but just like mm. a, re- a reporter and he he actually says Harper you know like spends a lot of time going through the speeches that his speechwriters give and like taking out anything that's interesting anything that could like you know raise an eyebrow or you know spark attention like like, like th- that's his goal uh, and, and and not just Harper alone. I I mean I I, I publish both in the United States and Canada. And I'll tell you, like if I read an article and it has some an interesting tidbit, it, a Canadian editor is much more likely to take that out. Whereas an American editor will like look at that tidbit and say, why isn't that in the first sentence? So um, one of the things that you tried to do then was to to figure out you know wh- why why would that be the case in other words why would there be an aversion and you kind of came up with um, two theories running on parallel tracks so uh, so so 
So pick one and, and, and walk us through it. Sure. I, th- I think that one major theory is just that Canada is like, um, it's like the church that sits next to the circus. The circus being the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Canada was, um, you know, like it, they're both products of British col- uh, colonialism, but Canada was formed later. And in America, you had, you know, like the Declaration of Independence, peace, love. I mean, the Declaration of Independence, which is like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Canada as a nation was formed um, a, a century later in 1867 in the aftermath of the American Civil War. And by people who thought, like, this is terrible. Like, you have a society that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are killing themselves with. We don't want that. And so the Canadian um, constitutional document, the British North America Act, it speaks of um, peace, order, and good government, right? That's the ideal, right? Uh, So peace, order, and good government sort of implies a society that really cherishes um, uh, uh, orderliness and cherishes um, uh, things that don't go awry and then really wants quiet. And and in, in a sense... You know, our Constitution mandates boredom. Right. Well, and there was even, uh, as this got going, too, there were other people kind of jumping onto the thread or jumping into the fray with, with various ideas. And I, I think th- this might have come from one of those sources. But there was an interesting passage from Robert Frost, which I hadn't been aware of, that kind of was making the argument that, yeah, at a certain point, all the he, I think he put it all the quote unquote good people went to Canada, which left, I think Frost is arguing, this rather boisterous, unruly, and therefore potentially dynamic, innovative, uh, and hell-raising population down in the U.S., but that there was sort of a goodness that migrated north, right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a process sort of referring to something, I mean, historians sort of call it a bit of a myth, right, but it's the idea of the loyalist. The, mm-hmm. the loyalists were those uh, Americans who rejected the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the sort of traditional historical myth is that these were the, the Tories, they were the gentry, they were the good you know, distinguished people, and they came to Canada, and then the rabble got left behind. Um, so, yeah, there's, 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 I mean, there's something to that. Like, it, it maybe not so much in historical actuality as in w- w- what the two societies, how they value each other, how they see each other. I, I think society sort of set up social ideals about what they want to be like, and then, and then they become that. Um, now, the, the other argument is, is a slightly different one, and it really has to do... Uh, with Canadian whiteness. Explain this. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, I've often been struck by the fact that, like, Americans, when I uh, uh, see me, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in India, or they see, like, uh, other friends of mine who are, like, uh, maybe from the Caribbean or from, uh, have African ancestry, like, they always say, like, oh, you're Canadian. I thought, you know, all Canadians were white. And, and the, the, so there's a, I mean, it's a weird uh, anachronism that Canada is sort of seen as a white country, even though, you know, like um, uh, Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver are all very uh, diverse cities. Uh, and in Toronto, the majority of the population is, like, non-white. Uh, but I, So I, I think in some ways this idea of the whiteness of Canada is tied up not to, like, social reality, but to the way society is presents itself. There's a kind of vision of Canadian history and of Canadian society that um, presents it, that sort of uh, erases any color from the history, you know, color meaning both people of color and any, any colorful detail. So the, um, you know, someone like uh, Conrad Black, a very, you know, uh, well-known uh, Canadian press lord, and actually an interesting fellow, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. Mm-hmm. But he, he wrote a, like a long, you know, thousand-page uh, 
the history of Canada, and it, he really does all he can do to sort of minimize, you know, the role played by the First Nations and later the role played by, you know, uh, immigrants, whether from um, uh, Europe or from um, uh, the rest of the world. So, so yeah, they're, they're the kind of vision of Canadian history that sees it as being very white, and I think that's tied to this idea of boringness, right? Like there's, an, an, um, um, there's a whitewashing of Canadian history. Yeah, not unrelatedly, we have a tweet uh, coming in at WNPR Colin, which is where you can tweet us, WNPR Colin, from Michael saying, a notion of Canadian boringness neglects the country's history of indigenous genocide and of oil. Uh, It's a middle-class fantasy. Um, I'm assuming you wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, that some of this is a story, as you're suggesting, a story that Canada tells as opposed to uh, a really fly-specked denotation of Canada's reality. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, like, my tweets were sort of coming out of, like, um, uh, in part, there's a sort of controversy that we're having in Canada because there's, you know, the, these uh, horrible re- revelations about what was done to Native people in the residential schools, and there was, like, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, you know, came to the, con- I think, unavoidable conclusion that this was cultural genocide. And then you had all these other people saying, well, no, this isn't genocide. Genocide is, you know, we're Canadians. We don't do genocide. <laughs> we don't do cultural genocide. We're, we're boring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually Conrad Black, who I mentioned earlier, wrote, you know, has written actually several columns now, so, you know, decrying the idea that there's cultural genocide. But I think that his aversion to the idea of, that there's cultural genocide is in keeping with him writing, you know, a thousand-page book that, has more about the um, Vikings than about the First Nations. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I would be remiss in having this conversation. And we, as I said at the beginning, we're not having this conversation about the French-speaking part of Canada because it's just completely different. And, I mean, there's no way we can say Montreal and boring in the same sentence. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, yeah, but, no, no, I, mean, I think that's, that, that's, again, it's about, I mean, I don't want to say like Canada's boring in actuality, but it's, it's more like how does the country present itself, right? Like how right. does the country... Um, uh, what is the social image that is, you know, being used? And I think the um, uh, the person who tweeted in and saying it's a middle class fantasy is right. And I, w- I would just amplify that and say it's an Anglo middle class fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, it's there's an erasure of the First Nations and there's also an erasure of Quebec because it's too interesting, right? Right, right. <laughs> like you know, to have a French speaking, uh, very European oriented nation in North America. That's interesting. But, oh, yeah, like, and a hell-raising separatist. Um, yeah. Being, yeah. That's way too interesting to be sort of part of a, the, the main national identity. But, no, I mean, I feel like in 2015 I have to, I have to say the words Rob Ford. I mean, how, how, does, how did Rob Ford, it, it, was he just sort of a blot on this otherwise beige escutcheon? I mean, is, is that how Canadians view him? Is he's just such, such an outlier in so many different ways that, if anything, he is the exception that proves the rule he almost calls attention to the milieu in which he's presented? Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of Canadians wanted to sort of excuse Rob Ford and, and a, lot, a lot of the reasons why they were embarrassed by him because he gave lie to this myth that we're boring. But I mean, I think in some ways it, it all sort of ties in together because I think prior to Ford, we've had uh, uh, previously mayors that are very respectable and, uh, you know, like very policy-oriented. Uh, and I think Rob Ford came out of um, uh, I mean, a lot of his support came from sort of like new immigrants and people, and especially like sort of working class people who are marginalized by the sort of traditional Toronto elite. 
And so Ford was, I mean, I would use a sort of uh, Freudian terms. He's the return of the repressed, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you have certain tendencies and you repress them, um, uh, and then the, the occasions where they will suddenly erupt. You know, this is why so many televangelists, you know, get caught with um, uh, having sex in washrooms. Right, exactly. Although, I mean, in general, that all takes place within the con- uh, within the confines of an in- individual psyche. In other words, the televangelist, because he's already acknowledged the tremendous power that sexuality has and, and has become very censorious and, and oppressive about it, you know, basically that – I mean, it's unusual to say, well <laughs> – <laughs> There's this this kind of little bubble point in an entire culture where this one guy becomes the placeholder for our repressed ids. But I love oh, yeah, that. But, 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 but yeah, so Rob Ford was the Canadian id, right? Yeah. You, you have like 200 years of an officially boring culture that tries to present itself <laughs> as being respectable. Then your id is going to become really twisted, and you know, like what you get is you know, like a crack smoking you know mayor who like you know who brought like sex workers into city hall, you know, like you know, did like all sorts of. Now, Jeet here, uh, we're talking to Jeet here, senior editor at the New Republic. Now, your fellow Canadians are therefore, by ne- by definition, too nice uh, and polite to be offended by any of the places that you're going uh, with this exploration. But was that the case? Were there some people, were any of your any fellow Canadians saying, hey, hey, step off there, Jeet here? There's a few, yeah. I mean, I think in general the response has been pretty positive. Uh, but there was a few people who were like, well, no, you know, like sort of took a uh, childish uh, school game thing. Like, You're the boring one. I'm not boring. You're boring. And then not, uh, I, I think the people who took that attitude didn't engage with the audio, uh, argument, which is not so much about Canadian boringness as about, you know, the national image and self-presentation. Yeah, and I think also there is a sense, which I was trying to get to that uh, earlier on, but uh, there's a sense that I have looking at Canadians. Obviously, Canadian humor is just this gigantic thing. We did an entire show, you'll be pleased to know, about Canadian humor and Canadian comedy. Um, And it's this gigantic, epic, and very, very influential force in in American culture. And I feel as though this boringness thing, I mean, it has a lot of different aspects to it, and and I I completely grant the ones that you've laid out there. Um, But I think there's also a little bit of a sense of that Canadians are in on a joke about their boringness. In other words, that there's there's a kind of, yeah, we're boring, right? I mean, there's there's a way in which there's a knowingness that's, that many Canadians present that with and that, that, you know, and underlying that is a sense of, of, I don't know, slyness maybe. Would you cop to any slyness? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think <laughs> there's definitely an element of slyness uh, uh, in, in many Canadians, and in in, in the, uh, and and there's a, there's a style of Canadian humor. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, but a lot of that Canadian humor is of you know Canadians who went to the United States because that's where they could be funny, but uh, and then who could bring an outsider's perspective to the United States, right? Um, which is, uh, but 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 no, I, I do think yeah yeah yeah. So, a lot of the sort of Canadian boredom is performance. There's a sort of performative boredom. <laughs> Which is, I think, the big point I was trying to make. But it's not—it's not a default boredom, right? Like this is kind of there are people who are just boring because they're boring. Whereas Canadians, we we work at being boring. Right. Exactly. We we, 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 we dress up to be boring. We make an effort, you know. Yeah. It's not as though you don't have other options. Uh, all okay. right, Gene here. Thanks so much. It was so great to talk to you. Uh, the piece—you uh, can read it in storified form in the New Republic. There's an analysis of it on Vox. It's viral. We're coming back with Game of Thrones. Some of you just may want to go, go away for 17 minutes. I understand that, but come back for the RSVPs.
So Sunday nights and Monday mornings are they're sort of a strange time because uh, some portion of the American television watching public is, you know, first of all, they start calling each other around 10.01 Eastern Daylight Time or whatever it is right now. Uh, the minute Game of Thrones is over and Monday morning you want to talk about it some more. And then there's this whole other segment of humankind that isn't watching, isn't caring, and is vaguely annoyed by all the conversations going on around them. We're going to try to ideally have a conversation here that won't completely alienate that uh, that other segment. Uh, Mir- Miriam Krul is joining us right now. She's an assistant editor at Slate. She and Dan Coyce uh, do a regular dialogue after Game of Thrones episodes. And they, among other things, pick the worst person in Westeros for that week. Slate also is running a graveyard for various uh, um, Game of Thrones characters where you can go and put flowers on the grave of people who have died or at least who have appeared to die. That's one of the complexities here. And uh, express your sadness or lack thereof about them. So Miriam Cruel, obviously, as two Game of Thrones fans, what we really want to do is uh, gossip in a way that would be somewhat exclusionary or exclusive, uh, uh, at least of that other audience. And we'll do a little bit of that. But um, I'm wondering if maybe we could begin by talking about last night's season finale and, you know, and whether there are sort of lessons that can be extracted that might even be applicable to the rest of the world. I mean, one of the things that has struck me is that in season after season, but especially last night, the message is that conciliatory people get screwed, right? That conciliatory leaders get screwed. That conciliation doesn't really work very well. Whether you're Daenerys uh, Targaryen trying to run Marine and Slaver's Bay or whatever it is in a much more enlightened way, you have horrible uprisings of violent entitled people in masks. Uh, If you're Doran Martell, you're trying to make uh, some kind of peace uh, with the Lannisters, but somebody else from your family poisons some else from their family. And if you're Jon Snow trying to bring the wildings into the fold, well, we know what happened there. So I don't know. Are, are the producers plus George R.R. R. Martin just telling us, forget about all that Obama, Anwar Sadat, de Klerk kind of conciliation and just, you know, be as ruthless as you can? That definitely seems to be a theme from season one mm-hmm. onward, that uh, anyone you think is doing good things and helping people is definitely going to die which is why the beginning of the season finale was so strange to me, because it felt like fan fiction-style revenge of all the people we hate dying by all the people we love. We saw Arya kill the first person on our kill list. We saw Stannis, who has done terrible things as a leader, killed by Brienne. Uh, we even saw Reek or Theon come back to his senses and help Sansa. So after all of these, in the world of Game of Thrones, wonderful things happening, uh, having the episode end the way it did with our uh, hopes kind of dashed. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you. Okay, we have to sort of also deal with like a third constituency of people who might be listening right now, and those, of course, are the people who aren't all the way up to date on Game of Thrones but plan to be. So it's it's impossible to have this conversation without having some spoilers. And the spoilers anyway, uh, so they're such... They're so up in the air. I mean, it did appear, okay, plug your ears, turn down your radio, whatever, last night, that, that Jon Snow was murdered, although they are they're, are assassinated by his fellow members of the Night's Watch, although there are all kinds of theories percolating on the web right now about whether he can be brought to life by some kind of kiss of fire. from Some very the, convincing theories. Yeah, I think very convincing theories. But, you know, one of the things that struck me, too, is um, the, the, there's a lot of very sort of classical elements to this series. So last night we saw Jon Snow die in a way that really kind of, I think, specifically 
specifically um, evoke the death of Caesar, you know, with this this boy, Ali, being the Brutus, right? There's this, this one thing that you, we discovered last night is the two things you don't want anyone to say to you in Westeros are shame, because then they throw poop at you. Uh, and, among and, other things. Among other things. And who knows what got thrown. And, and for the watch, uh, because that means they're going to stab you to death. But, you know, I really, it really did feel, I, I felt there was kind of a Shakespearean touch to this, uh, to this death. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, Brutus comparison is very apt. I am not a reader of the books, but um, that my understanding is that Ollie, the young boy who Jon Snow took under his wings, is the character created for the TV show. Uh, and I think it was a very important character to create because it made the death all the more gut-wrenching for us to watch this young person who Jon Snow has basically taken under his wings turn on him and kill him. But again, in a kind of non-Shakespearean way, I'm totally convinced by the notion that he's going to come back in some form or other, because in my mind, there's really too much left open by his death, unlike the other characters that we've seen die in the show, horrible, terrible deaths that are shocking. Jon Snow has so much more to offer the show, and I'm eager to see how they resolve that. I mean, there's sort of an economic, sort of a entertainment show business economics argument. I mean, they've got that set there for the Night's Watch with the wall and the cold and all this stuff. And the, if he's dead, there's no star there. There's, they have no, nobody to populate that with who would be uh, all that interesting. I think also, you know, the actor who plays Jon Snow, um, as you no doubt know, gave this uh, interview in which he sort of talked about what he thought were the mis- he he thought Jon St- Snow had in fact made the fundamental mistake that we're talking about that he didn't understand. So to set the stage a little bit and maybe include some of the people who don't watch. Jon Snow is the, the leader of this group called the Night's Watch. They're, they're these protectors. They take vows of celibacy, which they're not very good at maintaining. And you're supposed to be protecting us against all, or, or the people of Westeros, against all these bad things on the other side of the wall, which include White Walkers, who are kind of like zombies, and then Wildings, these very uncivilized uh, wild tribal people uh, who are marauders and raiders at times, except that Jon Snow has figured out that the only way to survive the, the horrible zombies is to make common cause with the wildlings, bring them onto the other side of the wall and, and make them part of an alliance, uh, even though they're hated, just hated by his fellows on the Night's Watch. And that's why he dies this Caesarian death. But the actor who played him said, you know, he really thinks Jon Snow just didn't get it. That, that it's sort of like not understanding how much uh, Israelis and Palestinians are capable of hating each other. That was the analogy that he used. Is that your take on Jon Snow, too, that he really goofed up? I read that interview as well, and I was kind of shocked that he thought of it that way. The way I've seen this season of Game of Thrones is a lot of the characters have served as a kind of foil for the way that Jon Snow has led. You've mentioned Daenerys and how she's led the people of Marine. There's also Stannis, who, how he led his army. And they've each done it in a different kind of way. Stannis is very brutal. He was a very good general figure. Uh, he was able to make decisions quickly. He was brutal. He didn't have emotional decisions. And then we saw Daenerys, who was, like, overly emotional about every decision she made. Everything was gut-wrenching for her, and she made some terrible decisions for that matter. But Jon Snow, I thought, had a very nice balance between the two. I always thought that he thought through everything a little bit more intensely than someone like Stannis did, but he also was able to make a not-super-emotional decision the way that Daenerys did. And I was kind of shocked that Kit Harrington felt differently. 
Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I mean, he's living pretty close to that reality. I don't know much how much perspective he actually has on it. You know, since you're mentioning Stannis Baratheon, and since I know that you also write about religion, this is kind of an interesting area of this story. So, once again, to set the stage a little bit, Stannis Baratheon is one of multiple pretenders to uh, what is called the Iron Throne. Uh, he is, uh, as you're saying, Miriam, uh, a pretty accomplished and pretty ruthless and pretty hard-nosed general. But he's also very much in the thrall of this so-called Red Lady Melisandre, who is uh, the, the overseer of this uh, one of many kind of competing religions uh, within the world of Westeros. And this one is highly mystical and seems to be capable of creating almost these sort of shadowy avatars that can show up and, and, and kill people under certain circumstances. And he's taking a lot of advice from her. And the advice leads him, once again, spoiler, the advice leads him uh, in, in something that's like right out of the Iliad or something to sacrifice a member of his own family, a very helpless and lovable and endearing member of his own family in order to like sacrifice, like burn at the stake that person. And it kind of appears as though that wasn't really... <laughs> I mean, she doesn't really deliver on her spiritual promise. And I'm wondering, as somebody who does write about religion, is there a take here on on that weird sort of the, the merging of decisions of state and decisions of war and decisions of religion, the kind of muddling up of all those and the resultant disaster? Religion on this show is really fascinating to me. There are very strong religious bases. We can talk about Melisandre. We can talk about her role. But especially in the season finale, um, again, you mentioned that I do this worst person in Westeros chat, Mm -hmm. and uh, we chose for the finale that the gods were the worst people in Westeros because they've really kind of screwed everyone over. If you're talking about King's Landing, we have an entire situation where Cersei put the sparrows in charge, these kind of... Well, they're a Taliban, basically. That's what the... I mean, it's an ascetic religion where they kind of forego all worldly pleasures, and they are really this fanatical religion that has taken power. Not that King's Landing was this great place before, but they've totally destroyed King's Landing and taken over in this really terrifying way. If we talk about Arya Stark, who is um, serving the many-faced god, she's totally confused by what's happening, and it's not clear what the many-faced god has in store for her. That's the most confusing religion ever. Not only is Arya really confused, everybody's really confused. Yeah, I, I am not exactly sure where the showrunners are going there. But like you said, the most interesting religion, the one that they've built up the most, is Melisandre. Uh, so not the Melisandre, sorry. The um, I had such a difficult time pronouncing the name of. Well, there's god. a there's that apostrophe in there that makes it very complicated. But yeah, it's this um, sort of strange red god, right? Right. So um, Melisandre has clear powers. She's done many mystical things. We talked about her shadow child. She's really put Stannis under her wing, and he he's seen that she's had success. But this is the first time that we've seen her failure. I find it very compelling that they've created religion that can succeed and also fail at the same time. There are, I mean, I want to go back to um, one of the other religions you referenced, uh, because I really do think, I mean, I'm perhaps guilty these days of watching Game of Thrones and and extracting various, you know, real world lessons from it. But I really do feel as though um, the emergence of this group, the Sparrows, in uh, in King's Landing, there's something very Taliban like them, right? They're they're enforcing a kind of Sharia law, uh, a ferociously enforced law, and there's a temporal leader, Cersei, who thinks that she can 
can install them, I mean, enhance their power, and then and then kind of ride that dragon, you know, basically use them to her advantage to punish her enemies, uh, to maybe even kill her enemies. And what she doesn't understand is that their convictions run much stronger than hers and, and that you can't control the Taliban, right? I think that there's definitely an argument to, made, to be made for that comparison. I think a lot of people have found real-life uh, corollaries to all the stories in Game of Thrones. Um, I talked with um, another one of my coworkers at Slate, um, Mel Bowie, about Marine and Daenerys, and he made an, a very compelling argument that the whole slavery story there is similar to American Restoration. And I think that these are compelling arguments, but I'm hesitant to make uh, direct comparisons between the two. I think that the lessons we can learn from... King's Landing and the Sparrows is definitely very similar to that. Though I, I hadn't thought about the uh, that uh, Jamel Bowie argument. That's terrific. That yeah. So you have in, in Marine, you have in Slavers Bay uh, this force, Daenerys Targaryen, who wants to liberate all the slaves, and then you have this almost seem, seemingly endless supply of people in masks, the sons of the Harpy, who who are opposed to these policies, opposed to this change, and very murderous about it. They kind of are the clan, aren't they? It, I mean, pretty much. Yeah, they I, even I, have the masks. Yeah, I mean, I, I just. I, I hadn't picked up on that. That's uh, I love that idea. All right, we're talking to Miriam Cruel. She's uh, one of the people writing, one of the many people at Slate writing about Game of Thrones. But there are many people at every publication writing about Game of Thrones. It's just the kind of thing that you like to write about. One of the things that um, uh, I've been intrigued by over the year, over the years, over the seasons of Game of Thrones has been the audience reaction to tragedy. So, um, and I think last night came the closest. Uh, in terms of, sort of what it excited in the audience to uh, what was formerly the greatest outrage, which is something called the Red Wedding, uh, one scene in which a whole bunch of very sympathetic and promising characters were brutally killed off, and people were just reeling and phoning in sick to work and announcing that they would they would disconnect their televisions and never watch TV again, and nobody could ever say the word game or thrones to them. It was just too much, too much. And watching on social media last night, Miriam, I saw a lot of that too. Like, I hate these people. I hate who did this to me. My mother's crying right now in front of the TV set. We can't go on as a family. And I find myself thinking, you know, it is just a TV show. It's just a story. And But it's almost as though people are not prepared for reversals of quite this magnitude. Yeah. I, as I mentioned at the top of this conversation, I am still in the camp of Jon Snow is coming back in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel this way after the Red Wedding. I was devastated by that as well. But those all felt like reasonable parts of the plot. Last week's episode that saw Shireen dying felt kind of heart-wrenching and tortured and unnecessary. Um, But Jon Snow's death is different. Jon Snow is a character that is so integral to the mythology of the show. His story is is left so open. I mean, we still don't know what his his parentage is. So to see him die just doesn't seem real in the world of the show, let alone something that viewers can deal with. Although it is, you know, it was said from the beginning, people who have read the books uh, said as the TV series was unfolding at the very beginning, don't get too attached to anybody. You know, anybody you like can be killed off. And I do feel as though we're we're raised a little bit differently. You know, I mean, it, it, as TV watchers, we've been raised a little bit differently. Our expectations are that occasionally, very, very occasionally, someone we like will die. You know, but you could probably, and most of the time, it's because the actor wanted to work some, somewhere else and asked to be killed off. So you have it every once in a while in Downton Abbey. You know, but really, the idea of people being killed off as a plot point, you know, it's gone on a little bit in The Sopranos, a little bit in Breaking 
bad. But I don't I think for the most part, people feel as though some kind of safe zone they have with television has been invaded here. That there's just so much chaos that that television is doesn't feel as safe to them as they're accustomed to thinking of it as being. What's your thought about that? Well, I mean, that's part of the appeal, to be honest, of Game of Thrones is that you have no idea what will happen. You can't leave any confidence in any of the characters. But on the flip side, you're going to kill all the people, but they have two more seasons left of the show. They still need to have characters for fans to root for. They still have to have people vying for the Iron Throne or else there's no more Game of Thrones. So if you're going to kill off all the leaders, who do you have left? I don't know if you've seen this um, Coldplay mock musical Game of Thrones, but um, there's a wonderful song where Tyrion is basically gloating that he's the only character left on the show. And it's kind of humorous, but it's also kind of absurd, because while I am a huge fan of Tyrion, um, there's no show if you just have Tyrion and Daenerys. They could have some great conversations over wine, but that's not really Game of Thrones. Right. So somehow or other, we now have a long, long wait. Boy, talk about winter is coming. Um, Have you figured out what you're going to do in terms of just sort of getting a life or resurrecting your reality now that there's no waiting for Game of Thrones from week to week? I mean, those are just new black now. Okay. Also, um, it was announced this morning that uh, Ramsey Bolton is joining the crew of Morning Joe. He's going to be a commentator there on MSNBC. So, you know, you sort of get a fix that way. And I think he's going to fit in, too. I think uh, he'll fit in with the mentality there. Uh, Miriam Cruel from Slate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Season one. Some people's parts just ain't very long, but not me. I'm still going strong. Is it okay that I didn't understand most of that? For instance, what's up with Harry and Hermione? Did they die this season, or was that just Ron and Frodo? Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Allison Ehrenreich, Hallie St. Germain, and Katie McAuliffe. The part of Bill Curry was played by The Mountain. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff eating dragon tartare, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, stories of having and overcoming stage fright. And now, back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow's show is all about stage fright. Uh, But uh, for today, we are going to finish with another exploration of modern manners with Henry Alford, who is our go-to person uh, about uh, changing mores. He's the author of Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. He also writes the Circa Now column for The New York Times. And for The New York Times, uh, Henry has uh, explored uh, or identified, I think, sort of a new trope uh, in in American manners. It is what he calls the aspirational RSVP. Henry Alford, welcome back to the show, and tell us about the aspirational RSVP. Hello, Colin. Um, well, this is a phenomenon that's um, largely Facebook-derived uh, or social media-derived, and it's people who are saying, yes, I will come to your event, even though they know or are fairly certain that, in fact, they will not show up at your event. So what do you make of this? I mean, I I have a lot of theories about this. I feel as though this particular phenomenon contains worlds, as as do so many (laughs) social phenomena. But but, what, what worlds does it contain for you? 
Well, for me, the world it contains is is the world of ambivalence. And obviously, we love our friends for their ambivalence. It's, you know, the fact that you have contrariness within you is what makes you lovable, charming, nuanced, interesting. But I don't think that this extends to your ability to RSVP or to make a commitment about going to a function. Right. I mean, so, uh, I mean... At first blush, what's happening is this kind of E.M. Forster room with a view thing where the person confronted with the choice of yes or no and not offered the choice of maybe, although, as you point out, maybe is increasingly offered as a choice. But given the choice of yes or no and or maybe, maybe, you know, the person wants to be affirmative. He wants to be he wants to say yes. So he says yes. Because he doesn't want to be sitting there on the screen where other people can look at all the responses as this, you know, as this party of no, right? Exactly, no. And that's, you know, because social media are essentially performative, um, you know, that it's all about having other people watch you do stuff. So, yeah, people feel like they can say, they can hit the join button or the or the yes will come button and um, you know, get points for for being supportive, but then they feel like under the dome uh, that that covers all of these social media sites that that it actually has no no valence or any or any meaning to have said yes. Right, I mean, and nobody wants to be sort of in the role of person who's not going. Henry Alford. You know, you don't want to be that guy. No, exactly. Oh, that curmudgeon. (laughs) Right. Who said he couldn't, that he's already got something else going on. Now, of course, this fails to take into account a lot of other stakeholders, starting with the person who's wrapping the bacon around the scallops for a certain number of people. I mean, to to have this be uh, amore is sort of disastrous. I mean, the whole idea of an RSVP is to give somebody a nose count, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there is, you know, an economy of scale here that it is it's a much greater sin to do it at a smaller event. Mm-hmm. If you bail at a friend's dinner party, then yeah, you really should be um you know, that friend is allowed to to jump at you and and rip a vein out of your neck. But if you're saying if you're bailing on a 500 person party in an airport hangar you know it's 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 less of a big deal right rsvps for raves are notoriously (laughs) fungible and unreliable Um, rave community yes they're awful at the at the rsvp very tough to get the count ahead of time well see i think another thing that's happened is a steady deterioration and in fact another contributor to our show ran richards cooper back in 2010 wrote a piece also for the new york times about the fact that people just don't answer rsvps not so much on facebook but he had sent out maybe an email blast or something uh, and it was it wasn't in an airport hangar it was something that required really kind of knowing whether people were coming out and i think he just he sent out 45 inquiries of t- 23 of whom just blew him off entirely and, and didn't answer at all and and i, I think Maybe there's been a little bit, and I think that was sort of the beginning of the digital age where people just sort of thought, well, I don't have to commit to anything, even commit to the act of explaining whether I've committed or not. Yeah, no, exactly. And there are a couple of factors there. You know, one is that with people uh, who are texting primarily as their primary means of communication, that that's a much more ephemeral thing. And so some of those folks are saying, are RSVPing to three or four events 
on a Saturday evening and then texting at the last minute. But I th- yeah, I think the thing with the RSVP is people don't realize that, particularly at a larger event, that guests are being invited in waves. So for you to um, not respond, you're actually holding the next wave back. You're you're keeping someone else from getting invited. Right, or some, somebody else, if it's a wedding or something, somebody else has been told, yes, you can come, but you can't bring a date or something like that. And yeah. It turns out that the yeah. date can actually come. Well, now, I have, first of all, one of the things that we do on this show, and we do it with with no remorse whatsoever is is blame as many of society's ills as we can on millennials. Oh, so millennial bashing that is the way to go. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's it's it really is. It's the new cockfighting. Uh and so um one of the um, one of the, th- the theories that I have is that for millennials, because they grew up with digital culture, there's a less sharp and visible demarcation between their lives in college and their lives entering the world. When we entered the world, when we left college and entered the world, I mean, it wasn't that we didn't carry some of those habits and practices and behaviors, most, most of which were loathsome, licentious, and self-indulgent, over into our alleged adult lives. But there were people sort of standing there as we walked out of the gates of college and into the gates of the workforce saying, you know, you're not you're not in college anymore. You're going to be held responsible for all kinds of things that you weren't held responsible for for the last four years. And yeah, I, I feel, no, absolutely. Yeah. I like it. And, you know, and I, th- I think the other uh, little facet of it is that we are increasingly living in a restaurant culture. And so that people think of the RSVP as you know, they think of restaurants where you're only going to call and make a reservation if you want to go. You're not you're not going to call a restaurant and say, hey, I'm not coming tonight at eight o'clock. Just, <laughs> just thought I'd let you know. Um, and, and I see you. And I think we see that with, um, you know, all the the food preferences, too, where. You know, you ask someone who's coming over, is there stuff that you don't eat? And you get a list of 20 things that they don't eat. It's, you know, there's a difference between going to a restaurant and, and going to a, a friend's house. The um, Well, and as you pointed out, this um, uh, one of the people that you surveyed, um, a librarian whose name is alarmingly Sylvia Platt, not Plath, but Platt. Um, she said that she she realized what you're saying that people think that they only have to respond in the affirmative, not in the negative. So she she's now writing RSVP if you are coming or not, which is right. almost because in- yeah, some go ahead. people actually don't realize that. Yeah, you've got to phone in a, a no, um, and you know weird as as that may seem, but. And, and I think it's particularly people who never host stuff, right, that those folks are working with a much smaller toolkit of disappointment. Um, but uh, people who have been on the receiving end of, of RSVPs know that, yeah, you, you ideally you, you want to hear back in 24 hours, and, and you definitely want to know if it's um, a yes, but you also want to know if it's a no. I love the idea that the alternative to the thinning briefcase of enthusiasms is the burgeoning toolkit of disappointment. Everyone uh, has an emotional valise. <laughs> exactly. It's just, you just walk right back to the luggage department and pick out whatever fits. So I try never to have Henry Alford on my show and just 
take, 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 ask, 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 and never give. Because that's the kind of person I am. That's just who I really am. So I have um, a, a lanyap or a lanyape or however you say that uh, to, to bestow on you here at the end. And it's oh, something. A little after dinner mint. Yeah, a little after dinner, dinner mint. Which, so I was, I, I had the article up on my screen and then I don't know, I X'd it out. I just needed to get it back. So what I, t- I typed in Alfred. RSVP, and I did pretty quickly get your article, but I also got the wedding of Jamie Tribble and Chance Alford. Uh, I don't know who these people are, but their wedding was up on something called The Knot, K-N-O-T, thenot.com. And one of the things that you could do, although I think their wedding has now already taken place, but as I explored thenot.com a little bit more, Henry, one of the things I discovered was that you that one could I could have RSVP'd to the Jamie Tribble Chance Alford. Alfred wedding, even though I'm not invited. Really? As a total stranger? <laughs> and I think that could be really fun. You know, I mean, totally fun. <laughs> I know there's a tour operator that lets you go to, um, you know, those four day long Indian weddings. Right. Um, you can. Yeah. So you can go to some Rajasthani um, four day wedding, even though you, you don't know the uh, the bride and groom. I think even responding in the negative could be very alarming to the people who are having the wedding. <laughs> Total random stranger is not coming to your wedding. <laughs> right. Have we invited people that we're not aware of? Who are these people who are? I mean, I, I hate, I shouldn't even mention it on the radio because if people started doing it, if it became kind of a social trope, it really would cause quite a bit of misery. I think it would, yeah, of just getting this kind of huge collective body of the, the folks who are not coming to your event. Yeah, that could be quite. Uh, Alarming. All right. So um, with that in mind, if it does become any kind of trend or something, call it Henry Alferding. Don't call it Colin McEnroeing. I don't want to have my name on this thing. People are going to get really mad. Henry Alford. All right. The author of uh, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Read them in the New York Times in the Circa Now column. Thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. Tucker Ives, Kion Wolf, uh, all of our wonderful interns. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about stage fright. Be afraid. Be very afraid.